Let's turn our Bibles to Job chapter 16. We've been looking at uh, the book of Job this fall, and we've seen the background of the book that Job became something of a battleground between God and Satan. And God said to Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that in all the earth there is none like him? He uh, truly fears me, and he eschews evil. And uh, Satan answered God and said to God, Job really only serves you because you bless him. You've blessed everything that he put his hand to. You've built a hedge about him. But you take down that hedge. You let me get at him and uh, take the things that you've blessed him with, and uh, he will curse you to your face. He doesn't serve you for yourself just for what you give. God said, all right, you can take all that he has, but you cannot touch him. And one day, Job lost all of his wealth. He lost his children, his whole family, except for his wife. And uh, his reaction, he said, the Lord gave, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he worshiped God. And then uh, God and Satan converse again, and God says, Have you considered my servant Job, how he responded, though you moved me against him without cause? And Satan says, We didn't carry the test far enough. Let me touch him, and he will curse you to your face. He will no longer serve you. He will no longer trust you. And God says, All right, you can touch him, but you cannot take his life. And uh, Job then loses his health. He's smitten with a terrible skin disease, and he sits on the city dump and scrapes himself. Three friends come to seek to comfort him. And their approach to comfort is to say, God blesses the righteous man, God punishes the wicked man. Since you're experiencing suffering, obviously God is punishing you, you must have done something terrible to be suffering as much as you have. That's their basic approach. Uh, God uh, will not uh, punish you, otherwise it wouldn't be just for him to do that. Satan uh, has brought into Job's life the most frightful combination of circumstances. And now he has quenched Job's hopes, he's crushed Job's spirit, and through the medium of these comforters, he presses his advantage. He senses Job's weakening, and he presses his advantage. It looks like Job's had it. Looks like Satan's effort will succeed. In the 16th chapter, you get Job's estimation of his comforters first. In uh, verse 1, then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things, miserable comforters are ye all, as his evaluation of their comfort. might help if we uh, put their argument in their own words to sense it just as Job sensed it. In chapter 11, you have Zophar, one of these three comforters, and in... Uh, Verse 6, the last part of it, 
uh, chapter 11, Zophar says this to Job, Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. These men began to get frustrated as they urged their point, Job, you must have done something wrong, now confess it and turn. And Job wouldn't do it. He said, no, I haven't. They got frustrated and they began to feel he was hardening his heart and he was, he was saying God treated him this way although he was innocent, which would make God unfair in their view. And so they said, your iniquity is less than you. God ought to do more to you than he's done, Job. That's the way this friend felt. And he says in verse 13 of that 11th chapter, Job, repent. If thou prepare thine heart and stretch out thine hands toward him, if iniquity be in thy hand, put it far away and let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacles. For then shalt thou lift up thy face without spot. Yea, thou shalt be steadfast and shalt not fear, because thou shalt forget thy misery and remember it as waters that pass away. Job, repent. Repent, and God will forgive, and God will restore. There's Zophar. Eliphaz, in chapter 15, talks along these lines. He says in verse 20, The wicked man travaileth with pain all his days. Verse 29, The wicked man shall not be rich, neither shall his substance continue. Job God wouldn't bless the wicked man, prosper him, and the godly man he wouldn't cause to suffer, not like your suffering. That's their thesis. Job's answer, oh, incidentally, uh, before we look at Job's answer, you have modern comforters today who would seek to comfort man in his troubles and trials. In a sense, Job is still with us, and, and his comforters still are. There's a play that's been written based around the life of Job, a modern play called J.B. And in this play, Archibald MacLeish has three comforters come to Job in his suffering. Job, or J.B. in his play, suffers along similar lines. In uh, one fell swoop, uh, he loses his family. Here's the way it's described. A son destroyed by some fool officer's stupidity. Two children smeared across the road at midnight by a drunken child. A daughter raped and murdered by an idiot. He loses all of his children. And then J.B., who had owned a bank, loses the bank. The whole block is gone. The bank block, all of it, J.B.'s bank, you know, just gone. Nothing left. Just the hole. He loses his wealth. His three comforters arrive, and one of these modern comforters is a communist. One of these modern comforters is a psychiatrist, non-Christian psychiatrist. One of these modern comforters is a cleric or a minister. Uh, the communist comfort, you know, communism teaches that the evil in the world and the suffering in the world is basically due to the class society. And if you 
do away with the class structure and have a classless society, then you would ultimately bring about utopia, where it would be from each according to his ability to each according to his need. You do away virtually with suffering and bring in the good society. Uh, since uh, the haves will not voluntarily give up what they have, you have to, by violent revolution, uh, bring this about. And it involves a lot of pain and turmoil in the process. And uh, yet, you sacrifice, you suffer in order to bring about this ultimate good for the world, this utopia, the way it's put in the play by the communist comforter who comes to Job, he says, history is justice, inexorably turned to truth, not for one man, for humanity. One man's life won't measure it. One man's suffering won't count, no matter what his suffering, but all will. At the end, there will be justice, justice for all, justice for everyone on the way. It doesn't matter. You get hurt on the way? Well, that's part of the price of bringing it in. There's the comfort that's offered to you and your suffering. The comment in the book is, he calls that comfort. The non-Christian psychiatrist, if you're familiar with modern psychiatry, particularly is influenced by Freud, he would say that an awful lot of suffering is due to guilt and that this guilt is not true guilt, it's false guilt. Men have a guilt complex. They think there are rules that they've got to follow, uh, and they have these built-in inhibitions from childhood. Their mother brought them up in a Victorian fashion, so that when they break the rules, they feel guilt. The way to help modern man is to side with his id over against his superego, break down his conscience, so he doesn't feel guilty when he violates the rules, since there really are no rules and he ought to just do whatever he wants to do. The psychiatrist in the story uh, says, we have surmounted guilt. It's quite different, isn't it? You see the difference. There is no guilt, my friend. We're all victims of our guilt, and we're not guilty. Uh, of course, we are guilty. And if anything, our generation needs, it's a recovery of the sense of guilt and that there are rules, there are absolutes. And it's no real comfort to a man to tell him he's not guilty when he is guilty. You delay the day of reckoning. When he stands before God, faced with his true guilt, is judged, is cast into hell. There is real guilt. There is a way that it can be removed, but not that way. The third uh, comforter that comes along for J.B. is the minister. And uh, his confrontation is along the lines of repent. Uh, he says, acknowledge your sin. And J.B. says, uh, teach me what my sin is, and I will hold my tongue. Show me my transgression. He says, no, you show me. Search your inmost heart. Question it. Guilt is a deceptive secret. And he says, uh, do we need to name our sins to know the need to be forgiven? Repent, my son, repent. Joe J.B. says, repent of sins. I have not sinned. I will not violate my integrity. 
He says, your integrity, now you squat there challenging the universe to tell you what your sin is called. It can't be called. Your sin is simple. Your sin is that you were born a man. He's saying, the whole human race is sinful. That's your sin. You don't need any further explanation of that. And that's true. The whole human race is sinful. And it's also true that God exacts of all of us, any of us, less than we deserve. The guilt that we have just as being a part of sinful humanity is such that no matter how much you suffer in this world, if you suffer as Job suffered, you still are not having exacted on you uh, anything like the guilt that you actually bear and what you deserve. That's a, a biblical truth. He has not rewarded us according to our iniquities, nor dealt with us according to our sins. If you want to know what your guilt deserves and what my guilt deserves, it deserves hell. Rebellion against an infinite God demands infinite punishment. And that's why there is hell. That's what we deserve. So God exacts of us less than we deserve. In a sense, J.B.'s cleric was right. But this common guilt that we all have can't explain extraordinary suffering. If we were suffering for that common guilt, we ought to all suffer to the same degree. And extraordinary suffering, especially extraordinary suffering of a comparatively good man. Actually, they're none good from God's perspective. We all have sinned. But the suffering of one or a comparatively good man can't explain this common guilt if that was why he was suffering. All of us ought to suffer to the same degree for that suffering. Well, that's not a valid explanation. We do need to recover, though, that sense of sin. As spoken to by C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, he says a recovery of the old sense of sin is essential to Christianity. Christ takes it for granted that men are bad. Until we really feel this assumption of his to be true, Though we are a part of the world he came to save, we're not part of the audience to whom his words are addressed. We lack the first condition for understanding what he is talking about. And when men attempt to be Christians without this preliminary consciousness of sin, the result is almost bound to be a certain resentment against God as to one who is always making impossible demands and always inexplicably angry. When we merely say that we are bad, the wrath of God seems a barbarous doctrine. As soon as we perceive our badness, it appears inevitable, a mere corollary of God's goodness. And he winds it up like this. We have a strange illusion that mere time cancels sin, but mere time does nothing either to the fact or to the guilt of a sin. The guilt is washed away, not by time, but by repentance and the blood of Christ. Exactly. We have true guilt. There's only one way that true guilt can be removed, and that is the blood of Christ. Christ received 
what we deserve. He paid in full for our sins. That's why he had to suffer as no man has ever suffered in this world. He underwent in this world not just crucifixion, but damnation. He underwent the awful anguishes of damnation on the cross. And he was doing that in payment for our sins, so God could be just when he forgives us. And that's the way guilt can be removed. When I acknowledge that I am that sinful, and I turn, and I understand why Christ had to die for my sin, and I trust him for my forgiveness, not that I'm not that guilty, but that I am that guilty, but he's paid for it. I trust him and God to forgive me for his sake for his death for my sin, on the basis of his payment. And I surrender to him as my Lord, turn from my sin, seek to serve God. Then my guilt is removed. I have forgiveness. That's the true biblical way of comforting. Another modern comforter that you encounter every now and again is one that I encountered when I was a young minister. Right, out, right in seminary. Matter of fact, pastoring a church while I was in seminary. A couple in the church went on vacation to uh, their home back in Virginia. They had one son. He was killed by a truck on vacation. And a minister there comforted them like this. He said, don't blame God for what happened to your son. He was hit by a truck while he was on his bike. Don't blame God for that. God didn't want that to happen. God had nothing to do with it. God has set the world up, and he's not going to interfere. And the problem was the truck driver was careless. People make mistakes. That's the thing to blame. Don't blame God. He got God off the hook, didn't he? And this man came back, and he said to me when they returned, he said, now here's what this minister told me, and don't you tell me any different. Don't you tell me God had anything to do with that, because if I thought that God had anything to do with the death of my son, I couldn't help but hate God. I have received comfort. Don't you take that away. What would you say? Well, that's some, those are some modern comforters that we encounter. We want to see how Job answers his comforters. In verse 1 of chapter 12, Job starts off like this as he, his answer is intertwined with their arguments. Verse 1 of chapter 12, Job answered and said, No doubt but ye are the people, and wisdom shall die with you, but I have understanding as well as you. It says, let me tell you but I know to be so. Verse 6, The tabernacle of robbers prosper, and they that provoke God are secure, into whose hands God bringeth abundantly. You say God won't bless and prosper the wicked? Well, I want you to look at that man over there. He is a robber by trade. He has prospered. His house is stuffed with abundance, and he is secure. God doesn't smite him with lightning, does he? How do you explain that in the light of your theory, he says? And uh, in chapter 13, verse 7, Will ye speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? 
When you speak wickedly for God, he says, you misrepresent God. Now, there's his answer to his comforters. Then he has a comparison. We've seen his estimation of their comfort, his comparison with how he would have comforted them. In verse 3 of chapter 16, Shall vain words have an end, or what emboldeth thee that thou enterest? I also could speak as ye do. If your soul were in my soul's stead, I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. He said, if we swap places, I could do what you're doing. I could say, what have you done? But he said, I wouldn't do that. Verse 5, I would strengthen you with my mouth, and the moving of my lips would assuage your grief. How? How would he have comforted them? How do you comfort somebody who's hurting? John Riley tells about the little boy who his dad came home and the little boy threw himself into his dad's arms just crying terribly and just heartbroken. His dad said, son, what has happened? He said, my turtle died. Uh, his father thought about it. This is ridiculous. All this over a turtle. I'm just going to tell him to quit that and if he doesn't I'm going to spank him. Teach him to act like a man. They thought, that's not the way to handle it. And he thought, well, I'm going to take him down to the pet shop and, and let him buy uh, any pet that he wants or another turtle, whatever he wants. He thought, no, that's not really teaching him how to handle suffering and sorrow. You can't always go and get it replaced. That's not the thing. I need to teach him how to handle it creatively. He said, son, I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to get a shoebox. We're going to paint it gold. We're going to put velvet in it, some of Mama's velvet, that black velvet. We're going to line it <clears throat> with that. And then we're going to get one of your sister's baby pillows and put it in there. And uh, we're going to call Uncle John and Aunt Mary and your friends. And we're going to have the most fantastic turtle funeral that was ever held. The little boy said, Daddy, that's wonderful. That's a great idea. So they got the shoebox. They painted it gold. They lined it with velvet. They got one of the little pillows. They called Uncle John and Aunt Mary, and they got ready, and they went up to get the turtle. And his daddy stuck his hand in the uh, aquarium, and just as he did, the turtle stuck his head out, his legs. He wasn't dead. The little boy looked at it, and he looked at his daddy. He said, kill him, daddy. <laughs> <laughs> got to be creative in the way we handle suffering. Well, <clears throat> how, do you, how do you comfort somebody who is suffering? What would you, what would you have said to this uh, family I spoke of who'd lost their son? How would you have sought to comfort? What I said was, uh, you know, <clears throat> you may have received some comfort from what the minister said, but it was false comfort. It was false, number one, because it wasn't biblical. It got God off the hook, but God doesn't ask to be taken off the hook. God takes full responsibility for such things. Shall there be evil in the city, and the Lord hath not done it, says Amos? Shall there be calamity, not moral evil, but it's not making God the author of moral evil, but shall there be calamity in the city, and the Lord hath not done it? In uh, 
Exodus 4.11. Who made man's mouth, or who made the deaf, or the dumb, or the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? A baby is born blind? Who made the deaf, or the dumb, or the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? The Lord assumed responsibility. And he says that he controls everything. He says, not a sparrow falls without your heavenly Father. I control the flight of sparrows. Not one of them can perish without my permission, says God. The hairs of your head are all numbered. Not a single hair can fall from your head without my permission. That's the biblical position. And when Job said, the Lord gave, the Lord taketh away, he was saying it right. Ultimately, what happened to him came from the hand of God. You say, Satan took him away. He couldn't have done it without God's permission. The Lord gave, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I said to this couple, you know, God explicitly says these things, and which is to say he's going to interfere. And if you were to take the position that he won't interfere, you may get him off the hook, but you rob me of any true comfort. What's the point of praying for your family when your family goes on vacation? You say, God, watch over them as they drive from here to here. You're asking God to interfere. You're asking God to interfere with every driver who comes along the road. You're asking him to interfere with every nut and bolt in that car. What's the point of praying if God's not going to interfere? You rob me of true comfort. And uh, you misrepresent the biblical position. You might say, well, then why did God do it? And my answer is, I do not know why God did it. I cannot always say, or maybe even often say, why God did a particular thing that caused you or me suffering. I do know that on occasion, suffering comes as chastening, as punishment, done in love. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Some chastening, some suffering is due to chastening. And we need to examine our hearts. And we need to say, God, is there something you're saying to me through this? Because it could be that. But if nothing comes to mind, then I don't need to assume that it's chastening. If something does come to mind that I'm conscious the Lord is arguing with me about, I need to deal with it. I need to repent of it. Nothing comes to mind? All right. I also know that whatever the cause may be, God is going to use this and he designs this for my good. But what is my good? My good is to conform me to the image of Christ. All things work together for good to them that love the Lord, for Christians, to them that are called according to his purpose. But what is that purpose? What is that good? In the context, it says he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, to be like Jesus. And so the suffering is part of the molding process that's making me like Jesus, which is a blessing, a tremendous blessing, but a painful molding process. And whatever I'm going through, and although I cannot explain why God may be doing a particular thing, I know that he loves me. I know that he loves me. How do I know that? How can I be sure of that? Because he sent his son to die for me, to undergo unparalleled suffering so that I might be forgiven. I know that God loves me. 
He commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I know that he is my source of strength in suffering, that rather than turning from him as we're tempted to do and questioning and complaining, I need to turn to him and rest in him. In the great hymn, uh, How Firm a Foundation, Ye Saints of the Lord, second verse says, When through the deep waters I call thee to go. Notice he, he takes us through those waters. The rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The fire will not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume, thy gold to refine. I know that. That's not make-believe. Fanny Crosby wrote, All the way my Savior leads me. How, what shall I... What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. That was written by a woman who was blinded at the age of six when a quack doctor put the wrong medicine in her eyes. Now, Notice the peace she has, heavenly peace, divinest comfort. How can she have that? Here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whatever befall me, this blinding or anything else, it didn't happen by accident. Jesus doeth all things well. He did it ultimately, and it's for my good. That's not make-believe. That's scriptural. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. He promises all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. In that particular case, the mother had come to me about six months prior, and she had said, My husband is not a Christian. Would you unite with me in prayer for him, that God would do whatever is necessary to bring him to himself. And we united our hearts in prayer. And then the little boy was killed. And out of that, and out of my conversations with him, that father did turn to God and to Christ, surrender his will, put his trust in Jesus Christ alone to forgive him, became a Christian, began to grow. God gave them another child. And that family one day will be united in heaven. Otherwise, there would have been one missing. Job's frustration in seeking relief. In verse 6 of chapter 16, it says, Though I speak, my grief is not assuaged, and though I forbear, what am I eased? Oswald Chambers says, We find him on the frontiers of despair. Despair is the hopelessness that overtakes a sane man when it's pushed to the extreme in grief. He's on the frontiers of despair. And then his description of the combination of the forces against him in verse 7. He says, There are two forces, but now he, that's God, hath made me weary, and thou, his comforters, hath made me desolate. 
he speaks of how they had, uh, what they had done to him. In verse 8, thou hast filled me with wrinkles. You make me old before my time. And uh, what God had done in verse 9, he teareth me in his wrath. Who hateth me, he gnasheth upon me with his teeth. Mine enemy sharpeneth his eyes upon me. He says, God is like a ferocious beast that hates me and is eyeing me and is coming at me to tear me. That's the way he felt about the way God was treating him. That God was his enemy. In verse 12, I was at ease, but he, God, hath broken me asunder. He hath taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. He set me up for his target. His archers compassed me around. Uh, he cleaveth my reins asunder and doth not spare. He poureth out my gall upon the ground. He breaketh me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a giant. Here's a description of God. Looks like Job has really lost his footing. Looks like he's given up any sense of God's justice or God's righteousness. Verse 17 not for any injustice in my hands. God has done all this, and I haven't done anything to bring it about. Not for any injustice in my hands. Also, my prayer is pure. I guess he's gone. I guess Satan has won. Surely, Job cannot continue to trust in a God and serve a God that he feels is his enemy, that hates him, that is doing all these things unjustly. Can he? Look at verse 19. Also now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and my record is on high. My friends scorn me, but mine eye poureth out tears unto God. He says, somehow I still believe that God will vindicate me, and I turn to him, and I cry to him afresh. Isn't that remarkable? He seems to have lost his footing, but he doesn't. Back in the 13th chapter, you have a similar thing where he, he speaks of his desire to appear before God, to plead his case, but he can't do it. And he feels that God is treating him unjustly. But then he says this, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Oswald Chambers says that's the most uh, dramatic statement of faith in the Old Testament. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. W.H. Green, in his commentary on Job, it says, from an angry God, he can turn nowhere but back to God himself, in whom he does and must confide in spite of his apparent hostility. Reason and sense urge him in one direction, and the strong recoil of faith drives him back in the other, and thus he is swayed to and fro still hoping against hope, ever afresh, seeking unto God who had cut him off. His sufferings press overwhelmingly upon him with their apparent evidence that God is against him. But faith comes with its whispers, scarcely audible, and yet refusing to be stifled that God must nevertheless be on his side. What kept him going? Why didn't he lose his footing? Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. He kept Job from falling. Suffering is a call to self-examination. Am I really a Christian? Have I really committed my life to Christ? Does it evidence itself in my obedience to him? That's the first question I must raise. But then, 
Am I walking in the light as a Christian? Is there anything that God is dealing with me about that I haven't been willing to surrender my will to him in? I need to raise that question. If nothing comes to mind, then I need to trust him anyway. I need to accept this thing that he has sent my way and not kick against the pricks. In acceptance lieth peace. I need to respond in a right way. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. The Lord gave, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the way we need to respond in our suffering, to trust him. Hudson Taylor. On one occasion, he was a founder of the China Inland Mission, received word that several of their mission stations, there was rioting in the area of those stations, and their missionaries were in grave danger. And the young man who had brought in the message thought maybe he ought to leave to let Hudson Taylor be alone, but he stayed around. In a little while, he heard someone whistling, and he looked around. Hudson Taylor was whistling. He was whistling his favorite hymn. Jesus, Jesus, I am resting in the joy of what thou art, and I'm finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. He said, how can you whistle when our missionaries are in danger? Hudson Taylor said, what would you have me do? Be burdened? Be panicky? Then I couldn't operate efficiently and effectively. I have to roll my burden on the Lord. That's what I'm doing. Hudson Taylor, when he was getting ready to go to the mission field, they said to him, you'll be forgotten out there. You have no real organization to back you. You'll go over there and be forgotten. You know, times are hard. There won't be any money. You'll starve to death. Hudson Taylor said, I'm taking my children with me. I don't have any problem as a father remembering that they need breakfast and that they need lunch and that they need supper. I couldn't forget my children if I tried. And I am convinced that God is a better parent than I am. He will not forget his children. Let us pray. As our hearts are bound, uh, possibly suffering has come into your life, a trial. Have you examined your heart? Are you truly a Christian? Have you really surrendered your will to Christ, trusted him as your master? and Savior. Perhaps you are a Christian and have not been really accepting his dealings with you, have been kicking against the pricks, rebelling, and why not trust him? Is he speaking to you about not walking in the light in some area? Why not yield to him? You've never genuinely surrendered your will to Christ and put your trust in him as your Lord and Savior, why not do that right now? Pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that my guilt is true guilt. And I thank you that you died to remove that guilt. You suffered in my stead what I deserve. And I trust you to forgive my sin on the basis of your death. I surrender my will to you as my Master, and trust you as my Savior. Amen.